Children's hospitals around the country have been showing us that they are not a safe place for our children. I want to talk to you today about Seattle Children's Hospital, especially their gender clinic, but I also want to share with you a story about what happened to my own daughter at age 14 at Seattle Children's Hospital and how we had to fight to get our daughter out of that hospital and out of Washington State just so we could make decisions about her health care. Hi, I'm Julie Barrett, and you're listening to the Women's Blaining Podcast. I'm also the founder of Conservative Ladies of Washington. We are an organization of like-minded ladies and gentlemen here in the state of Washington. We are working hard to advance the conservative movement in this deep blue state by electing conservative candidates, by educating and empowering the average citizen about what's going on and what they can do about it and how they can get involved and make their voices heard. It is proving to be quite a challenge, but we are up for it. And there are a lot of really good people who care very much that are in this fight with us. And we would love for you to join us as well. You can learn more about Conservative Ladies of Washington and the work that we are doing here in Washington State by visiting our website, conservativeladiesofwa.com. That's conservativeladiesofwa.com. And if you are not here in Washington State, I have great news. We will be launching our national platform, Conservative Ladies of America, later this fall. So stay tuned. I will have more information on our launch coming very soon. Well, this is a very big deal to me, this topic that we're going to discuss today. As you may already know, our family had an altercation with Seattle Children's Hospital in March of 2021 when they started making decisions for our 14-year-old daughter without our knowledge or consent in some cases. So I'm going to share a little bit of our story with you today, but I also want to share with you what's going on at Seattle Children's Hospital, what's happening in their gender clinic why you need to be concerned, and why we need to get in this fight. So Seattle Children's Hospital, like many children's hospitals around the country, I shared about what was going on at Boston Children's Hospital last week in an episode, and we are seeing this all over the place. These gender-affirming clinics are popping up all over the place. At Seattle Children's in their gender clinic, they accept patients ages 9 to 16. Our clinic primarily provides gender-affirming medical care, such as puberty blockers and gender-affirming hormones. Brief, brief mental health support focused on family decision-making and mental health documentation prior to initiating gender-affirming care is also available. But however, it goes on to say, if you are looking for gender-affirming mental health services only, you got to go somewhere else. They don't provide that. So they cut off the body parts, but they don't do any of the mental health services. So big disconnect there. I think it's very interesting that their mental health support is 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 brief because if you are looking at a nine-year-old who is supposedly what they call gender-diverse... 
you have a kid who probably hasn't really even started puberty yet, maybe just starting to, maybe if it's a girl, she's just starting to blossom a little bit and she's kind of not liking the changes that are happening in her body, which is completely normal when kids start going through puberty. And so it's easy in the society we live in right now and this social contagion that is transgender for a kid to think, well, I'm not really feeling comfortable with these changes. Maybe I'm just in the wrong body. It is not lost on me that they want these mental health supports to be brief, because if you actually did the mental health work in depth with these kiddos, you would probably learn that they're perfectly okay with their natural body. And you could probably talk to these kids about where they're at, the changes that their body is going to go through and to have patience and acceptance with the journey through puberty. But we don't want that in our society. We want to mutilate children. So we'll keep that mental health support very brief. Their website goes on to say, some people want to delay puberty from progressing. This option is available to youth who have started puberty, but who have not yet completed puberty. Puberty delay is temporary. If you stop taking the medicine, you will go through puberty of the sex you were born into. Then it continues on and they say, gender affirming hormones help make a person's physical body match their inner gender identity. These hormones let a person develop in a way that is different from the sex they were born into. As it continues, it says, some of the changes may be permanent. Now help me understand, how is that, these changes, permanent? But just up a paragraph before, they said puberty delay is temporary. So which is it? Is it temporary or is it permanent? Now, we all know that when you put a stop to the body's production of its natural hormones, you are going to do a lot of damage in a lot of different ways to vital organs within the bodies. Male and female are created to have this flow of hormones as their bodies progress throughout the course of their lives. And during puberty is a very important time as the developing body and the developing body parts and the reproductive parts need these hormones for many reasons. And and especially for women, one of the problems that they're having with these girls who go through this gender changing surgeries and the hormone therapy is that they have bone loss and osteoporosis porosis issues because those hormones are an important part of keeping the female body healthy and for bone development and for bone mass and all of that. There is no such pause button on puberty like these doctors in these children's hospitals like to tell people. It's not something that you can just push pause and then maybe 10 years later, you're 22 and you've decided to unpause and go through puberty at 22. That is not how the body works. You do not push pause on a developing body. You are permanently damaging a child's body when you put in hormones for the opposite gender, not of which they were born into, but of which God created them. 
God doesn't make mistakes and he has intricately and carefully designed our bodies and created our bodies to work with these natural hormones that we have. And when science and doctors and all these activists start messing with God's creation, we see a lot of problems. And these children who are going through these hormone treatments and these gender changing surgeries, they are having irreversible damage that cannot be changed. This website goes on to talk about their partnership with the Autism Center at Seattle Children's Hospital. Youth who are gender diverse are more likely to be diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder or show similar social challenges than other children's and teens. Some providers at the Autism Center are experienced in caring for youth with autism who also have gender dysphoria. Now I want to talk about this a little bit from a personal standpoint. I am a mom of a child who's been diagnosed with autism. My daughter is now 16 and I have twins. So the the child that I was talking about when I opened the podcast is they're twins. So I have twin 16 year olds. And when from a very young age, one of them liked to wear these big baggy tie dye shirts. She liked to wear basketball shorts and the other twin always dressed in dresses and girly girl. And not once did we ever think, oh gosh, she likes to wear baggy t-shirts and baggy shorts. She must not actually be a girl. Maybe she thinks she's a boy. We never once, thought never crossed our mind, nor did we ever ask her if she felt like she was something other than a girl. But what I have noticed in parenting this sweet girl is that other people in the world will look at my child and decide that since she presents as a tomboy and she has autism, she should be influenced into, well, maybe you're not actually a girl. Maybe you are some other, you know, maybe you're actually a boy. And in fact, and I've mentioned this in previous episodes, that child at her woke school, they did start calling her a boy name and start using boy pronouns because that is what they do with these children who are easily influenced, who may have some social delays and may not communicate as well as neurotypical kiddos, they will see these kids, these kids with autism or other special needs and see that they are easily influenced and they want to be accepted. And so they are easier to get to go along with this manipulation and these crazy leftist ideals than a regular kiddo would be. So I have watched this happen with my own child and I have seen my child be a target for their radical left gender indoctrination garbage. So if you are a parent or a grandparent of a child with autism, I would encourage you to be very alert and very protective of that child. And I would encourage you to at all costs, get that child out of public school. And secondly, I would say get your child to a state where you are able to make decisions for them as the parent. The website goes on to talk about needing uh, parental consent for children under 18. However, under Washington state laws, adolescents have the right to seek medical care for the following conditions, even without parent or caregiver consent birth control and pregnancy-related treatment, mental health conditions if 13 or older, 
alcohol and drug problems if 13 or older, sexually transmitted infections including HIV AIDS testing if 14 or older. Washington state privacy laws limit parent and caregiver access to adolescents' health information. Adolescents' medical records are private and confidential. The patient chooses whether to consent to releasing medical information, including to parents or caregivers. Now, when I opened, I told you that I wanted to share with you about what happened to my daughter a year and a half ago when she was 14. So this is the other twin. And we had, it was March, and she had a mental health emergency without going into too much detail. She had a mental health emergency, and she ended up being taken by ambulance to Seattle Children's Hospital. When she was admitted, the staff told me that because of COVID, I wouldn't be able to come in and that once they had had a chance to evaluate her, they would call me. And they called me in the middle of the night. It was like two or three o'clock in the morning. And they let me know that she wasn't talking. They hadn't really been able to get any information out of her and that they were going to let her go to sleep and that they would try again in the morning and they would call me back as soon as they had done their evaluation. So sometime around 7.30 the next morning, I get another call and they said that they had been able to evaluate her. They still weren't able to get much information out of her, but she said that she didn't want to come home. And so they were going to be discharging her to a youth homeless shelter in Seattle. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? She's 14 and she has a good home. She's not going to a homeless shelter. And this is when I learned that my child, who was 14 years old, had the legal right to decide where she would go when she left the hospital. And they informed me that she had chosen to go to this homeless youth shelter in Seattle and that I really had nothing to say about it. And this was just the beginning of my learning about all of the awful laws in Washington state that are completely anti-parent, anti-family. So my daughter goes to this homeless shelter where she ended up being for 10 days. And I will put links in the notes of this episode that go to an, a few episodes, a series of episodes that I did with Todd Herman, where I share the entire story in detail as we were going through it. Um, if you care to dig deeper into it, I think we did three different interviews as we were going through this, this time uh, with my daughter at Seattle Children's. So she goes to the homeless shelter, and while she's at the homeless shelter, they're not allowing us to communicate with her. They, We would try to call. They wouldn't let us talk to her. We had a friend who was a Seattle police officer at the time. He went to do a wellness check on her just to see if he could talk to her and see how she was doing. They wouldn't let him see her. Then my friend, who was actually that police officer's mother, she went a couple days later to take my daughter uh, a suitcase of some clothes and some of her items, and they wouldn't let her see my daughter. They took the suitcase and all of the items, but she wasn't allowed to see my daughter. And I started realizing that we were in a really dangerous situation here. A few days after that, I learned through a social media app that I was able to monitor that my daughter was cutting herself with a razor that the homeless youth shelter had provided her. And so I called the shelter and I asked them if they were aware that my daughter was cutting herself with the razor that they gave her. They were not aware, and so they looked into it, and they found out that, sure enough, my child was cutting herself with the razor that they gave her. 
So back she goes to Seattle Children's Hospital. I never get a call from the hospital for my consent to admit her to the emergency room. I never get a call that she is discharged back to the homeless shelter. Okay. Three days later, we go to the homeless shelter and we're going to get our daughter back. We've got this plan set up. We've got people with us. It was my husband and I, and I think three other people. And we went to get her and they wouldn't let us see her. They basically denied us access to our daughter. So we called 911 and a couple of Seattle police officers show up. They go up to the shelter and they engage with the staff and it seemed like about an hour passed and they came back out to us on the street and they said, we've never seen anything like this before. They are basically holding your daughter hostage and we need to call for backup. So they call for backup and there ended up being a total of eight Seattle police officers and this whole ordeal went on for about six hours. And by the time we finally got my daughter out of the homeless shelter, she was in pretty bad shape. And so not really understanding how bad Seattle Children's Hospital was at this point, I said she needs to go to the emergency room. And so they take her, the, she goes by ambulance to the emergency room. And of course, this time my husband and I are going to be there and we are going to, we are going to refuse to leave the hospital without our daughter. And so we go sit in this room and I don't know, it seemed like an hour or so later, a mental health professional comes in to see us after she has evaluated our daughter. And she says, I don't think I understand what the problem is here why can't your daughter go back to the homeless shelter? And I I think my jaw must have hit the floor. I was just aghast that this mental health professional would think it was a good idea to send a child from a good home with good loving parents to a homeless shelter in Seattle of all places. I mean, we're not talking about like somewhere in the middle of Wyoming. We're talking about Seattle, gross Seattle. And I even said that to her. I said, I I honestly can't believe that you think it's a good idea for our 14-year-old child to go live in a homeless shelter when she has a very good home and loving parents. And it was in that moment that I realized we had to get our kid out of that hospital and out of Washington State as soon as possible. And over the 10 days that my daughter had been in the homeless shelter, I had been doing a lot of research because we knew that she was going to need some help and we knew that she wasn't going to get it in Washington. So our plan had been to pick her up from this homeless shelter and drive her out of state to a facility that we had already made plans for her to go to. However, when she came out, she was just not in a condition where we could transport her, which was why she had to go back to Seattle Children's Hospital. So this is her third visit to Seattle Children's in 10 days. And when I let the mental health professional know that we were going to transfer her to a hospital in Idaho, she said, that is not ethical. We cannot allow that. You can't do that. And I said, watch me. And it took us another 48 hours to get her out of that hospital. We had to have a couple other professionals that have worked with our family and have worked with our daughter in the medical and mental health field make calls on our behalf and advocate to get her out of the state of Washington and to do what we were asking them to do. I tell you this story because they don't just do this 
to transgender kids. They will take your children in crisis and manipulate them and do everything in their power to get them away from their families. And I don't say this to imply that every single caregiver at these hospitals is a bad person because I think there are still really good people in the medical field, just like I think there are still really good teachers in public education. But their policy and the laws in Washington state and many other blue states are anti-family, are anti-parent, and they will take your child and they will indoctrinate your child and they will change, they will destroy the relationship and the family. That's their intent. It is evil and it is very much intentional. And it's important to me that people understand the seriousness of this and don't look at my story or other stories and think that it's an anomaly or that it can't possibly happen to them. You never know when you'll be in crisis. You never know what kind of a teacher your kiddo is going to have in school that may have a very negative and highly consequential influence on your child's life. This is spreading like wildfire throughout our country, and it's not just in blue states. It's spreading everywhere. And so I say this to those of you who are in red states. This is happening. I saw a story this morning about a father in Florida who found out that a school in Florida was trying to transition his 12-year-old son. This is happening all over the place. This evil has infiltrated every place in our country. And so it's important that we are all on guard, that we are fighting in places where it's already happening, and that we're playing defense in places where it isn't yet or it's slowly infiltrating. I want to play for you a clip of a podcast called Primary Care Perspectives. And this is from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And they're talking about minor patients as young as six that could possibly be trans. And I play this for you because I want you to understand that how prevalent this is in the medical community. And as parents, you know, we trust our our kids to our family pediatrician or your family physician. You trust these people. And we really can't do that anymore. We cannot blindly trust our medical providers, just like we can no longer trust the people in our education system. We have got to be on guard. We have got to know what's going on. You've got to research your hospital. Go to your hospital and search up gender affirming and see what pops up. You just might be very shocked. But I want you to hear from this worker about the patients that they work with. And this is the mindset of these people. A lot of us have um, been comfortable talking about sexuality with our adolescent patients, but we don't often talk about gender. Um, And so how do we start a conversation about talking about gender when we're talking with our adolescent patients alone and doing the rest of our kind of sexual health and mental health assessments? Um, so some of the language that I'm encouraging healthcare providers to integrate into their practice is some simple questions with open-ended answer mm-hmm. opportunity. So the simple question being, so Linda, you know, you're, you're assigned female at birth and there's an F on your birth certificate. How does that fit for you? How does that feel for you? Mm-hmm. What's it like being a girl at school? What's it like being a, a girl in your family? Mm-hmm. 
What that really opens up is a conversation that can meet many patient needs, mm -hmm. whether your, Linda feels very comfortable being a girl, whether Linda's worried about certain puberty changes that could be happening, as well as if Linda really identifies as Larry. You've just created an opening that says, I'm here to listen if mm -hmm. this doesn't feel like a fit for you. Mm -hmm. So that's some language that many providers from six years old up to 16 are finding lead to some great conversation. Can you imagine hearing a provider talk to your six-year-old about how they feel about the gender they were born into? I would become unfreaking glued if I heard a provider do that. And here in Washington, if your kid is over 13, you will be asked to leave the room. And I know a lot of parents do that and that is what I advise, or better yet, I advise finding a caregiver who believes that the parent should be involved and will have the child sign a release of information to the parent before they even treat the child. This is a key thing because if your child 13 or over will not sign a release of information, you don't get to know anything. And we encountered this with in our experience with our 14 year old as well, because she wouldn't sign, you know, in her crisis, she didn't sign it. I don't know if they even asked her to sign it, but there was no release of information signed. So um, there were a lot of things that we weren't actually able to find out. And those are things like a pregnancy test, a drug test, um, any of the tests, any of the medications, any of the evaluations. They can't tell you anything if the child doesn't sign the release of information. You're also depending on these providers to be honest with you and honest in that they're actually asking the child to sign that release of information. Now, here's another uh, video from, so the, that, that clip I just played you is from uh, Libs of TikTok posted that on their Twitter account, and I'm going to have a link to that content in the, the notes today. But there's also a clip of a dad who encountered a provider asking his three-year-old about his gender identity. This is mad. This is insane. I don't know if any parents of young kids have had this same experience. So we just took my three-year-old son in the doctor for a checkup. My three-year-old son. Okay, there's a reason why I'm emphasizing that and you're about to know why. So my wife and I are waiting in the room with our son and the doctor comes in. And he sees my son sitting there on the table and the first question that he asks him is, are you a boy or are you a girl? And I look at my wife like, what the f So luckily my son understands obvious tenets of biology at three years old and says that he's a boy, just like his chart says. So the rest of the appointment, I can't even focus because I'm wondering why in the world this guy is asking the question. And then I remember, oh yeah, I live in California. And call me paranoid, but this is where I think we're heading based on other things that have happened. An Ohio couple lost custody of their teenager for refusing them hormone treatment. And a divorced Texas couple were in a court battle over whether or not to let their seven-year-old transition from a boy to a girl. And many are saying that the new proposed Equality Act could lead to more parents losing custody of their kids who want gender transition. So again, call me paranoid, but I'm wondering if the doctor is asking the question of my son to see if he can establish a pattern over time that shows that my son wants to be a girl. But here's the thing, my son is three. I'm not even gonna let him choose what he wants for dinner. And some days, my son thinks he's a dinosaur, but I'm not gonna let him transition to a dinosaur. And being in California, this is probably gonna happen to people like me first, but I don't think it's gonna be long before we start seeing parents lose custody of their young kids because they're not letting them transition to the opposite gender. And I think pediatricians are going to be the ones who are going to start calling it out. I think he's 100% spot on. I think you're going to start seeing 
even more of these pediatricians, medical providers, teachers who are reporting to Child Protective Services and the authorities for parents who are not, quote, gender affirming, to use their language, who are not willing to let their young children's transition. And one of the main problems that I see with this, and I feel myself from my own experience with my child, is we kind of are afraid to talk about the experience because we are afraid as parents that CPS might come knocking on our door and take our child away from us if we don't go along with these crazy leftists who want to transition our children. Friends, this is very serious. It is an infectious disease in our society. It is very evil. They're after our children and they are out to destroy our families. And we must start standing up to this. We must start being outraged about this. And what do we do about it? You know, I was thinking about that as I was preparing to get ready to record this podcast. I was thinking about what do we do? What is the action? Well, like I mentioned yesterday, I believe that most of what we need to be doing is in our state and local government on a legislative level. We need to be getting involved in the lawmaking process. That is where all this garbage is originating in the first place. So we need to be involved with that. We need to be organized. We need grassroots efforts to get citizens, parents, grandparents, all these people who care willing to write to legislators willing to show up and testify and make noise about this because as long as we keep sitting back in silence and not really being a thorn in the sides of these lawmakers, they're going to keep doing this garbage. The other thing that I think we really need to do, and you are seeing this in some places around the country, but really not very much, is we need to organize groups of parents to go out and stand outside of these hospitals in protest, in peaceful protest with signs that are calling them out for exactly the garbage that they are doing to these children. And we cannot be afraid of what people might say about us or what names they might call us and that we're hateful. This is not hate. This is the destruction of a society. And we have got to do something to stop it. And those are the things that I believe would make the most impact. And so, of course, I'll be working hard with conservative ladies of Washington to impact on a legislative level. But I'm also thinking I'd love to start organizing some kind of protest at Seattle Children's Hospitals and the places near me that are doing this kind of garbage. So if you're a parent that's interested in doing that, I'd love to hear from you. You can head over to conservativeladiesofwa.com and there's a contact button you can connect with me there. I've also got all of my other contact info in the notes for this episode. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to connect with you and start organizing this. Um, And you can also find me all over social media. All of those links are also in the episode notes. And uh, I would ask you to please share this episode with your friends on your social media. We need to get the word out. We need people to be aware. We need people to know what's going on so that we can protect our kids and protect our families. Parents, for the most part, 99.9% of the time, parents know best. So thanks for tuning in. And I look forward to chatting with you again next time. (laughs) 